talk about, uh, kind of make a transition. We did a series over the Christmas season. Um, Caleb and I kind of um, tag-teamed that, that series. And today we're going to kind of wrap the year up. Um, next week we're going to go back into 1 Corinthians. And we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we will begin 1 Corinthians chapter 12 next week. And today I want to talk to you about the wisdom and the way of God. Amen. Um, and I want to challenge you today uh, concerning some things. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so very thankful uh, for who you are. And we're so very thankful, God, that you by grace uh, have saved us. Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray for all that are here today. Lord, my, my hope, my prayer is that everyone, Lord, under the sound of my voice, has come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, if that's not the case, I pray today that your gospel, Lord, would powerfully touch and transform hearts. Lord, we desperately need you. Lord, not just once in our life, not just for our salvation, but every day we need you, God as we live out and walk out the salvation you have so graciously given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, there is not one person on this earth, Lord, that comes into this world, lives in this world, that does not need your saving grace. Lord, we are desperately dependent upon you and I pray, God, that you would make that truth known to us. And that we would not resist that truth, but we would embrace that truth. And so embrace the grace that covers us and fills us and sustains us in all things. Father, thank you. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for Christ, the one and only Savior. Thank you for your word. God, let it have entrance into our hearts and our minds and powerfully change, transform us, renew us according to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In Genesis chapter 15, we see Abraham. <clears throat> chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. Let's, uh, let's turn over there for a moment. Genesis 15, chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 3, Then Abram said, Look, he's talking to God, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, that is his servant born in his household, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. 
And he believed the Lord, and he has counted it to him for righteousness. So here we see Abraham, then Abram. At some point, God changed his name to mean the father of many. Here we see Abram with no child, no heir. He's old, and the prospect of having a child with his wife Sarah at their age literally seemed impossible. And God does something quite amazing. God takes Abraham outside. He says, go outside and look at the stars and see if you can count the stars. They didn't have near the light pollution back then as we do now. And the, the prospect of Abraham counting the stars was, was impossible. See if you can count the stars because that's going to be like the number of your descendants. It's going to be an uncountable multitude. So God showed Abraham, this old and childless man, the stars. When Abraham had no reason to believe, when impossible seemed to be the only word that made sense for him. Have you ever been in a situation where impossible seems to be the only word that makes sense for your situation? Boy, I bet Black and Cindy can relate to that. In reality, we should all be able to relate to that. Whether we're suffering with some sickness or some situation, or if our life seems that it is just right where it should be and couldn't get any better than it is. Even if that's where you are, I submit to you that apart from Christ, your situation is absolutely impossible. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. So here's the truth we need to come to grasp. God's word does not always make sense, but it always makes a way. Go count the stars, Abraham, if you can. Those are going to be like your descendants in number. An uncountable multitude. Seems impossible, but that was the word of the Lord to Abraham. And God made a way where there seemed to be no way. God's way often becomes a stumbling block in foolishness for those of the world who are conditioned to think according to the world. But to those called, it is the wisdom of God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 29. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. One day when we stand before the Lord, there will be absolutely nothing in and of ourselves that will give us reason to glory. Because there is absolutely nothing in and of ourselves that has gained us what Christ has given to us. God has chosen, listen to what the Word says. Does this make natural sense to you? Does this make worldly sense to you? God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the mighty, the base things and the things that are despised He has chosen, the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in His presence. That is an amazing statement of God's way that is obviously contrary to the way of the world. Because the world would put its trust in what seems to be the right things. The wise, the mighty, the beautiful, the exalted. But God chooses all of the things the world would reject to accomplish His will. Have you ever felt like that? Or have you ever just wondered why God chose me? I have. Have you ever thought, God could never choose me. Maybe you wonder why God has chosen you. Maybe you wonder if God could ever choose you. In our culture that's full of beauty contests and talent contests and all of these things, we're the most gifted, the most talented the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most rich. That's what the world is looking for. I mean, they make, they make uh, what do they call them? Um, those blooper reels out of the people that don't make the cut. The best part of American Idol were all of the people that weren't qualified. I mean, the worse they sang and the more ridiculous and they, they looked, the more entertaining they seemed to be. And the world just laughs at them. But here's a funny thing. Those are the very people God takes and God uses to accomplish His purpose. God's wisdom and God's way may seem like foolishness to the world. 
We need to learn to trust God and trust His Word even when conventional wisdom tells us otherwise. It is not the wisdom in the ways of the world that we need. It is the wisdom in the ways of God that we need. So I want to discuss three ways that God works contrary to the wisdom of the world. The first way is this. We are called to be significant, but not necessarily known. Number two is we're called to be harmless, but not necessarily safe. And number three is this. We're called to be fruitful, but not necessarily gifted. So let's look at this first truth. We're called to be significant, but not necessarily known. Do you know who the royalty of American culture is? It's the celebrity. Britain has the royal family. We have the celebrity. As Britain dotes over and follows the royal family, so we in America have our favorite celebrities. We have publications that have superseded most publications that have real news and really relevant and vital information for our lives. We have things like People and Us and E and I don't even know all the names of them. There, there are so many. We have whole publications and page upon page upon page of internet publications that are filled with the minutia and the details of the lives of celebrities. What color bikini she wore on the beach. What cut his hair has taken now. What they wore at this award ceremony. What they wore on vacation and where they went on vacation and what they did and what they ate and It goes on and on and on. And so we as a culture becomes, we become just obsessed. Let's just use the word because that's what it is. We become obsessed with celebrity to the point that now we're raising whole generations of people that want to become celebrities because that's that's it. That's where it's at. I want to be known. I want to be famous. I want to be read about, talked about. I want my picture to be out there. I want people to be talking about me. Because significance has become associated with being known or being a celebrity. The people Paul talked about that God chooses... Those aren't the people you read about on the internet. Those aren't the people that make the headlines. Those aren't the people that we want to emulate. Because that's not what our culture celebrates. So we're called to be significant, but not necessarily known. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we have what we call the Great Commission. Remember, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me on heaven And in earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have taught you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. This is our 
great commission. This is what God commands all of us to do. The Georges are going to India. But you don't have to go to India to fulfill the Great Commission. You can walk across your street. You can walk across your yard. You can walk across your room. You can do it in many ways, in many places, in many shapes, in many forms. But the important thing is, are we committed to doing that, to fulfilling what God has commissioned us to do? In this commission, Christ commands us to go out and to make His name known as we make disciples of the nations, as we are teaching them, so that they will in turn go out and do the same. Disciples making disciples. Disciples make disciples. If you are a true disciple of Jesus, you will, at some point in time in your life, It may look different. The timing may be different for you versus other people. But at some point in some time, you being a disciple and making a disciple, that all has to click somehow. So I want you to think about the many, I mean the multitudes that have gone before us that are unknown to us. Just think about your own path to salvation. Yes, it was by grace through faith in Jesus, but there was a series of events that took place. There was someone, probably many more than you will ever know until perhaps you get to glory one day. There were people that prayed for you. There were people that sowed into your life, that watered the seeds that were planted in your life. There was a There was a series of events, the vast majority of them unknown to us. How did we all come to be in this very room today? Think of the diversity of where we are all from. I'm from Victoria, Texas. My father's ancestors came over on a boat in 1852 and unbeknownst to me, settled about a mile from where I live right now. And here I am living in the very place where my ancestors came to America and my my grandfather was born. Think that's an accident? I don't think so. How did that happen? How did you get here? How did we come to be in this room? God orchestrated. He ordained all of that. He did. He ordained your salvation. That person that spoke the gospel to you, that person that loved you, that shared with you, that prayed for you, that manifests the life and the love of Christ to you, that caused you to take notice. It was God. It was God who ordained and orchestrated all of that. But there was and is always a series of events that lead us to this. Somebody obeyed the Great Commission. Somebody was serious about being a disciple and making disciples. That's how we have all come to be where we are today. So there are many that have gone before us. They're unknown to us, but they are very significant to the kingdom of God. God calls each and every one of us as disciples of Christ to live significant lives, but that does not mean that we will necessarily be known. 
It's not our name that should be known, but the name of the Lord. To Him belongs all of the glory. In our humanness, we have a tendency to want our name and our achievements to be known. This is the whole issue with the celebrity status that everybody seeks. Now you can put a YouTube video online, and if you're lucky, it'll become an overnight sensation. And maybe people will really begin to know my name. Maybe they'll... God indeed calls us to live significant lives, but our significance, listen, our significance is in Him, it's of Him, and it is for Him. We are to be significant in how we live out the gospel and make Christ known to others. We are significant as the ground, listen, we are significant as the ground from which the seed grows and produces fruit and fills the earth. Remember, you're the ground. Christ is the seed. God's not looking for an increase of the ground. He's looking for an increase of the seed. The glory belongs to the seed. The ground does its part. But the purpose of the ground is to be a vessel for the seed to become manifest and that life to fill the earth. So our significance is not in making our name known, but in making Him known. We have an opportunity to do that each and every day. In very simple, unassuming ways, Maybe in ways that are much more overt. But as children of God, as the ground that is bearing the seed, our heart's desire should be for that seed to be manifest, for that life to be shown, for that life to be known and for that fruit to fill the earth. That's our significance. So in the coming year, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to live a significant life. Not to be known, not to be famous, but for Him, that He would be known, that His name would be exalted, that when people look at you, when people talk to you, when people consider you, the first name that comes to their mind is not your name, but the name of Christ. We're called to be significant, but not necessarily known. Number two, we're called to be harmless, but not necessarily safe. In Matthew ten sixteen. Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. To be significant in him and for the gospel is a calling to be wise and harmless, but certainly not safe.
it's interesting. We went down to my my family's in uh, uh, in Victoria and spent uh, an evening in a part of a day and had Christmas with my family. <clears throat> now we're gun owners, okay? Uh, I've got all my father's guns and all my uncle's guns. I, I don't have. They're, they're mostly. Older guns or hunting rifles. I don't own a pistol. Um, just never have. My, my dad always said, you, you know, you don't hunt with a pistol, you know, so you don't need to own a pistol. Um, so I got numerous, you know, shotguns and rifles and stuff like that. So I'm not opposed to guns, okay? And I do know how to shoot them, okay? Um, but we went down to Victoria, and uh, some of my family, they're like really huge my brother-in-law, he's got like an arsenal, no joke. And um, so, you know, the, the morning we were getting ready to leave, uh, my brother-in-law comes over to my niece's house where we're staying, and he said, Connor called me at 5.30 yesterday and said, because uh, uh, they know the manager of the academy and everything, so when the ammo comes in, which you can't get because it comes in and goes out so fast, so that, you know, the manager of academy called and, and said, hey, the shipment's in. And so my brother-in-law got up went early that morning because my little great-nephew, he's not old enough to drive. He goes over there and he buys the ammo, all that he can, uh, because that's the only way you can get it because it comes in and it just goes. And so Spencer has, you know, was looking for some twenty-two ammo and can't find it anywhere. It just doesn't, you know, you can't buy it. It's gone. And so... You know, I kind of have a, I kind of have a, I'm kind of conflicted. The Bible says if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I had an opportunity to buy a, a like an, a home protection weapon one time, and I don't know, I just didn't do it. I thought, well, I've got all these guns now already, and, uh, you know, that worked just fine, and. Like, you know, I would protect myself and I would protect my home if need be. Don't get me wrong. But you know why you can't buy ammo? Because everyone's afraid that the government's going to, you know, take our gun rights away and all that. No, maybe they will one day, you know. And, and, and I don't know. I'm just thinking, okay, if they come to, if they come after me to take my life because I'm a Christian, what should I do? Should I be like Peter and pull out the sword or pull out my assault weapon and shoot them? Shoot their ear off? Or should I be willing to lay down my life for the sake of the gospel? Do you know that there are countless martyrs who have gone before us who shed their blood for the sake of the gospel, who did not defend their lives even unto death? Jesus says, when you go out, therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I'm going to leave that to you and the Lord to figure out what that means for you. But I think Jesus is telling us something here. If we're going to be dangerous, we need to be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. Now, that kingdom of darkness may manifest itself in our earthly governments, no doubt. 
in earthly situations, no doubt. But I think what's most important for us to understand, remember the Bible in its entirety, from the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation, the Bible in its entirety is about Christ. There is no other subject in reality that this book deals with. There's lots of things that it deals with, but all of those things are bound up and our understanding of them is found in Christ. All the types and the shadows, all the, 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 the accounting of the law, everything, it, it is all to give us a complete picture of Christ. And so the fulfillment of all that is in the Scripture is fulfilled in Christ. Our greatest battle is not a natural battle, it's a spiritual battle. That doesn't mean we won't fight in the natural. Listen, if someone comes into my home to try to kill my wife, my children, I promise you, I know how to use my gun. And I would defend the life of my, my wife or my children if someone tried to come in and So how do we discern the difference between that? What if they come through those doors and they say, listen, Pastor Ripple, it's now illegal to preach the gospel. And if you are caught preaching one more time, it will cost you your life. At that point, what I do not do is take up my gun to de defend myself that point, what I do is take up my sword and I wield it, hopefully, skillfully. If it costs me my life, it's just my body. Jesus said to his disciples who he knew would lose their lives for the sake of the gospel, don't fear those who have the power to kill the body. Fear him who has power over your soul to cast it into hell or not. So we're called to be harmless as doves, but we're not called to be safe necessarily. We should neither seek safety for ourselves at the expense of the gospel and our great commission, and we should not be considered safe by our enemy and the rulers of this world system that oppose Christ and His gospel. We are to live wisely and harmlessly, yet constantly threatening, listen, the safety of the world's status quo that seeks to lull the believer into faithlessness. Do you know that the world is trying to lull you into faithlessness? Don't be lulled into faithlessness. The world is in opposition to Christ and His gospel. Our life as children of God in this world should be anything but safe for the forces that oppose Christ and His gospel. Do you understand the power of this word? For our true enemy, which is 
not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. This word is, I mean, this is the weapon. There's no earthly weapon. There's no earthly firepower that exists that compares to the power of this word. We've been given the most powerful weapon that will ever be issued to any army ever for all eternity. There is no more weapon more powerful than the weapon of God's word. Yet for many Christians, this is just a book that sits on a shelf and collects dust. It's not seen as a weapon. It's not seen as anything other than perhaps a relic, a good luck charm. My 911 phone book. No, that's not what it is. It's not what it is. God's Word. It's His living Word. It is the Word that reveals to us God Himself. It's the Word that the Spirit of God takes and illuminates and causes revelation to go off on the inside of us. It is the Word that contains the Gospel of Christ, the only thing that has the power to save us. This is what God has issued to us. We are called to be harmless, but we are certainly not safe. We're not safe for the enemy unless the enemy can lull you into thinking that this word really has no effect. It's kind of like owning a gun and never loading it and never buying ammunition for it. It's not going to do you much good. If you don't understand the power of this word and you never use it, you never wield it, then you are no threat to the enemy. And he feels absolutely safe with you. And he's content to let you have your Bible on your bookshelf, on your coffee table, or wherever else you keep it, as long as you never break it open and you never use it. This is what I mean by the world and the enemy lulling us into faithlessness. It's faithless to have the word and never use the word. Don't be faithless. Be faithful. So God indeed calls us to live significant lives. He calls us to be harmless as doves. yet constantly threatening the kingdom of darkness. He calls us to be salt and light in this world. That means that we are to affect those around us with the life-transforming power of the gospel. Christ dwelling in you by the power of the Holy Spirit is constantly threatening the safety and the security of the rulers of this world as His kingdom advances to their ultimate destruction. You realize that's what's happening. The 
kingdom of God, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. That kingdom within you needs to be manifest from you. And that kingdom of God is marching, advancing to the destruction of the kingdom of darkness and the ultimate glory of God. Kingdom business is risky business in this world. It could conceivably cost you your life, but even if it does, you are safe and secure in Him for all eternity. Amen? Those are foreign concepts to us who live in America, the land of the free. To actually think that perhaps believing in Christ, preaching the gospel could one day cost us our life. But I'll tell you what's just as dangerous, if not more. What's just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, is for us to live our lives thinking that everything is okay all the time we've been lulled into this sleep. And we live with a Christless gospel We have a Bible that we never look to, we never read, we never study, we never use. So though it is powerful, that power is rendered void because we refuse to wield the power of the Word. The enemy doesn't have to take our freedom away. He doesn't have to. We've given it. He doesn't have to take the power of the gospel away from us because we refuse to use it. We've become content with a Christless gospel, a powerless gospel. And I say, that's not who God's called us to be. That's not what it means to be harmless. Being harmless doesn't mean we don't call sin, sin. Being harmless doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. Being harmless doesn't mean we now compromise some things because it's just the nice thing to do. We just don't call those things sin anymore because our culture has evolved. And we understand that that's no longer sinful. You know how we come to that place? Because people lay this down and they choose to not pick it up. And if they do, they only choose to pick it up and use it for their own purposes. Do you know the devil? He, he knows the scripture. Yes, he does. And if he can get you to believe his version of the scripture instead of God's, you're not only harmless, you're powerless. So be harmless, but don't be powerless. Don't be safe for the enemy. Be dangerous for him. Be a threat to him. Amen.
So we're called to be harmless, but not necessarily safe. And the third point is this. We're called to be fruitful, but not necessarily gifted. Do you know the word gifted as we as we understand it in the English language, you know the word gifted is not anywhere in the Bible. Gift is in the Bible. The eternal life you possess in Jesus Christ is a gift from God. We talk a lot today about being gifted and talented. We got reality TV shows that are all about gifted people. We're in love with gifts. Next week, we're going to start back in our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. We're going to look at a church that was in love with gifts. We're called to be fruitful, but not necessarily gifted. John 15, 8, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, By my Father, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Paul wrote this in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. If we profess to be followers of Christ, we are expected to be fruitful. That is, we are expected to manifest the life of Christ. Only the life of Christ can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to me, church. Your flesh is not spirit, and your spirit is not flesh. And your flesh can never become spiritual. The only thing God is interested in doing with your flesh is crucifying it, is cutting it away, is burying it, and putting it away for good. In many churches, each Sunday we have what I call a self-help gospel. We have turn the pulpit into a self-help message. And we teach people because this is what people want to know. We want to know how to be more happy. We want to, be how to, we want to know how to be more successful. We want to know how to make more money. We want to know how to have better marriages. Listen, there's nothing inherently in and of itself wrong with those things. Who doesn't want to have a better marriage, be more successful, be more happy, have more money, especially after Christmas. I mean, we could all use more money right now, right? That is not the purpose of the gospel. The gospel was not given to you so that you could get more success, more money, more happiness. The gospel was not given to you even to have a better marriage, though I submit to you that if your marriage is gospel-centered, you'll have a great marriage. That's not what the gospel is for. That's not what this pulpit is for. But unfortunately in America, that's what we've turned it into. Because we're caught up with a lot of these things that seemingly are good, but they miss the mark. They're not centered in the gospel. 
So if we profess to be followers of Christ, we're expected to be fruitful. We're expected to manifest the life of Christ. It is only the life of Christ that can cause the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest in our life. So love, first attribute of the spiritual fruit of the Spirit, the first attribute mentioned is love. There's there's not nine fruits of the Spirit, okay? There's not. These are not individual. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are not nine different fruit. There is only one fruit of the Spirit. These are all attributes of that one fruit. That's why we can take love and we can say love is the defining attribute. Just like Jesus said, love is the defining attribute. Love God, love your neighbor. I say you love one another the way that I have loved you. This is the new commandment that I give to you, love. What does love mean? Not what the world thinks it means in any way, shape, or form. Only those abiding in the life of Christ can manifest the fruit of His Spirit. So we could simply define fruitful as having and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit or the life of Christ. The word gifted as we know it, remember, doesn't appear in the Bible. Gifted as defined by Merriam-Webster means this, having or revealing great natural ability, intelligence, or talent. So God obviously graces all of us with giftedness, right? The fact that you can read is a gift. The fact that you're able to learn to read is a gift from God. And I think we could... So then say that God graces all of us with giftedness, but some are more or less gifted than others, and that each person's natural abilities, intelligence, or talents differ from others. If we were to run a foot race, I would venture to say that I probably would not come in last, but I would certainly not come in first. There are some gifted with the ability to run much faster than me. Not all are gifted athletes or gifted performers. Not all are gifted intellectually the same. Our culture puts an emphasis on giftedness that the Bible does not. The scripture emphasizes, listen, fruitfulness, not giftedness. And fruitfulness is not something you produce. Fruitfulness is what God in you produces through you. That's why you'll never glory in your fruitfulness. He will get all the glory because he put it in you and he brought it out of you. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do our part, right? Because we're still commanded to love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit, but we're commanded to love one another. 
So one's great natural ability, intelligence, or talent indicates, listen, nothing about their spiritual condition or the reality of being a disciple of Jesus. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Jesus links unmistakably fruitfulness with discipleship. Disciples are inherently fruitful if they're disciples. So it's not our giftedness that indicates our discipleship or our spiritual condition. It's our fruitfulness. One's fruitfulness indicates everything about their spiritual condition and the reality of being a disciple of Jesus. Listen, even spiritual gifts, as we're going to begin to look at in depth next week, even spiritual gifts do not indicate the reality of spiritual fruit. The Corinthian church had lots of spiritual gifts. They had virtually no spiritual fruit. And the Apostle Paul called them out on it in no uncertain terms. And even called them to question their very salvation because they so lacked spiritual fruit in that body. He said, you need to examine whether you are not truly in the faith. Now that was very politically incorrect of the Apostle Paul to do that. This is why there were many in the Corinthian church that did not want Paul to come there. <laughs> he was just too politically incorrect. You know what we need more of today? We need some more politically incorrect leaders in the church who will preach and teach the uncompromised word of God and challenge people where they are not make you question your eternal security because I believe in eternal security. But if you've been lulled into believing something that's not true, if you've been lulled into thinking that you're something that you're not, then somebody, if they really love you, better call that into question. And the only thing that can truly call that into question is the gospel. You don't need me judging and condemning you, questioning your salvation, you need to hear the gospel. You need to let the gospel have entrance into your heart and let the word judge you. Let the word determine where you are. And when the word locates you, then you cry out to God if you find out you're in the wrong location. Because he's the one that can save you. So God may endow a person with spiritual gifts, but... If that person does not have love, which is the first defining attribute of spiritual fruitfulness, they're nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Paul says, hey, I can have all faith, I can have all the spiritual gifts I want, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. So our significance... Our significance is not in making our name known, but in making His name known. We're called to be harmless, but we most certainly should be a danger to the kingdom of darkness that's being swallowed up by the kingdom of the Son of His love. 
That's happening. The kingdom of darkness is being swallowed up. Be a danger to the kingdom of darkness as you fulfill your calling to be harmless as doves, wise as serpents. And it's not our giftedness that is most important. It is our fruitfulness. Don't spend time trying to perfect your gift. Become a fruit inspector. And if you find the fruit is lacking, then go to your knees in prayer and cry out to God that He would cause your life to become more fruitful. Go to the Word of God and let the gospel have entrance into your heart and let it begin to bring about a change, a transformation, a renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Amen? So let's embrace the wisdom and the ways of God that are foolishness to the world around us. And in doing so, let's bring glory and honor to His name. We talked about today in Bible study about how history repeats itself. It's not a new concept. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what Solomon teaches us. This is part of the vanity. And he says, we are doomed. We are prone to repeat our mistakes. You would think we would learn from them, but we don't learn from them. Why? Because generation after generation were born into sin. with the nature of our first father, Adam. We're born with an inherent need to be born again. So what do we do? We do the the same things Adam did. We commit the same sin Adam committed and all those who came after him before they were regenerated by grace through faith. How do we break the cycle? Well, we can't break it for humanity in general who are born in sin, but we can break it in our own lives by being born again. How do you know if you're born again? Well, we talked about some things today that are good indications, fruit being one of the chief indications. But you also understand that you can plant a tree and that tree won't immediately bear fruit. It does take some time. So in that intermittent period when you haven't seen the fruit pop from the tree yet and you're still wondering whether this is a fruit tree or not, how do you know whether you're born again? Here's what Paul wrote to to the Romans. He said, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's not a formula, okay? We're not saved by formulas. What that teaches us is that if you want to be saved, if you say right now, I have a desire to be saved, listen, that desire didn't come from you because the Bible teaches that you don't have any desire except to rebel against God. There are none righteous, no, not one. There are none, N-O-N-E, none who seek after God. Don't ever fall into the mistaking uh, frame of mind that you're just going to wake up one day and decide to seek after God. 
No one in human history ever did that. Otherwise, God could have stayed in heaven. Jesus came seeking us because he knew that we would never go seeking him. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. So if you have a desire in you to be saved, to know God, I'm going to tell you right now, God put that desire in you. And if you will do what the scripture says, if you will call upon his name, the Bible says not you might be, we hope you will be. The Bible says if you call upon his name, you will be saved. How do we call upon his name? We call upon his name with our mouth. From what? From a heart of faith. From a heart of faith. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is a truth the Bible teaches us. If you Listen, if you spend enough time with people and you listen to them long enough, they'll reveal their heart to you because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They can put on an act. They can be like an actor and repeat the lines that they've been taught to repeat. But eventually, if you hang with them long enough, what's in their heart's going to come out. If you call upon the Lord from a heart of faith, God will save you. If you have called upon the Lord from a heart of faith, and you're struggling with the fruit that's not what it should be in your life, don't question your salvation. Run to the Savior. Seek His face. Break open His Word. Go to Him in prayer. Begin to fellowship with Him. Begin to allow His Spirit to reveal Himself to you through this written Word. Let the Gospel just begin to saturate your soul. Let the Word bring about a transformation and a renewing of your mind. And I promise you, before too long, you will begin to see the manifestation of His life through you. In you. Amen? Amen. We are on the edge of a brand new year. And I know some of you are facing circumstances, situations that seem absolutely overwhelming. I believe there's probably some of us who are in those situations. Situations may vary. The circumstances may vary. Maybe you've not said anything to anyone. Maybe you're like Mary. I love what the scripture says. Mary heard all of these things. The Bible says Mary hid those things in her heart. She just held, she held those things in her heart. There may be things you're holding in your heart that you've not revealed to anyone else things you're trusting God for, things you're believing God for, things that, that you look at in the natural and say, God, there's, there's not a natural answer here. God, I have no clue what I'm to do. I have no clue, God, what the course of action should be from here. I'm trusting you. The only word that makes sense to me right now is impossible. Well, listen, I've got good news for you because God loves to deal with impossible things. 
The angel said to Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. I started by talking about Abraham. I want to end by reading a scripture out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, about Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Can you imagine? Here he, he's sweating bullets, thinking, I have no son, I have no child. All that I have is going to go to my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. God says, no, I'm going to give you a child. He's an old man, she's an old woman. It seems impossible, but God does the impossible. And Sarah conceives and births Isaac. And the scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but we know that Isaac was probably at least, at least a young man. Maybe in his early teens, possibly older, but, but at least a young man. Which means Abraham had a number of years with Isaac. And then one day God says, Hey, Abraham, you know that son I gave you? Your only son that you waited so long for? And we overcame impossible odds to get him here. That son, I want you to take him up to a place that I'll show you. I want you to sacrifice his life to me. The Bible doesn't tell us much about what Abraham said or did. He just kind of matter-of-factly went about his business, saddled up his donkey, got everything together, took him, the boy, everything needed for that sacrifice, along with a couple of servants. Here's what the Bible says. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received whom had received the promise, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, here's what Abraham concluded, concluding that God was able. Would you say that with me? God is able. God is able. Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Here was Abraham's attitude. He was dead before I got him. My seed was dead. The womb of my wife was dead. God, you raised him from the dead to begin with. If you require his life, I believe you can raise him from the dead again. That was Abraham's faith in God. When the Bible says it was accounted unto Abraham as righteousness, it wasn't just that he believed that he was going to have a child. His Faith went much deeper than I'm going to have a child. That faith went so deep that Abraham was willing to sacrifice this son and believe and trust that God could even raise him up from the dead if necessary. What's the gospel lesson here? God didn't require the life of Abraham's only son. That was only a shadow, a picture, a type of the reality of who the promise truly was. The promise was not just the descendants of Abraham. The promise was the seed, the one seed who is Christ. 
the one and only Son of God, and God did require the life of His only begotten Son. And He required that life for you and for me so that we, by grace, could experience His salvation so that we could experience the life of His resurrected Son. So I want to encourage you today. There's no situation, there's no circumstance. I'm not, I'm not saying everything's going to turn out just the way you want. But I'm saying, here's what I am saying. In spite of how things may turn out, in spite of how bleak things look right now, even like Abraham, if it cost my son's life, I know God is able. If the gospel cost our life, whether that's literally or figuratively, it will cost your life one way or the other. It's either going to cost it literally, it certainly will cost it figuratively. God is able to raise you back up. Not in your life but in the life of His Son. That is the life that counts. That is the gift that God has given us. That is why He did take the life of His Son and He did raise up His Son from the dead so that He could impart to you that life, that eternal life, that resurrection life. And if you have received that gift, you have received the greatest gift. And you have received something that cannot end, that cannot be destroyed, cannot. That's why in him you are safe and secure. This is the significance of your life. This is why you're a danger to the forces of darkness. This is where your fruit comes from. Amen? So go and live your life and glorify him and make his name known. And know that one day he will allow you to participate in that glorious day of celebration. Amen? Let's all stand. This is the gift of God. This is the gospel of Christ. Not that God's given me tools to live a better life. (laughs) That God has made a way where there was no way. This isn't a home improvement plan. This is we're going to destroy the house and bury it and raise up a new one. And you're going to get to live in it. Father, we pray today that that as we leave one year and step into a new year, Lord, we don't leave our problems behind. We don't leave our circumstances behind. Lord, we will in many ways carry those problems and those circumstances with us into the new year. Even though that may be true, God, I pray that we can leave our old mindsets. We can leave our doubts. We can leave our fears. We can leave our insecurities. We can leave our faithlessness. 
We can leave our disobedience. We can leave those things behind. And we can step into a new year. Lord, we can begin today, right now, living in the hope and the promise that you have given to each one who is in Christ by grace through faith. Lord, if we are unsure right now, Lord, if we call upon you from a heart of faith, your promise is that you will just that easily save us and translate us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. And I pray, Father, if there are any in this room right now who have never made that transition, they've never been translated from darkness to light, that, God, they will cry out from a heart of faith and experience the miracle of the new birth, of a new creation. I pray, God, that you will give all of us hope as we go into a new year, regardless of what our circumstances may be, that you are a God that is larger, more powerful, greater than any of our circumstances. Your truth, your life, your love transcends and swallows up all things. God, open our eyes that that truth and that reality becomes so large that we can see nothing else. That all the shadows are swallowed up in your glorious light. Help us, God, to live that kind of life, to find our significance in you, become dangerous to the kingdom of darkness, and to strive and to seek and to desire fruitfulness above all things, that your name would be glorified in all the earth and especially in your church world without end. And all God's people said, Amen. Give the Lord a good hand. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God. Uh, I would just invite the Georges to put their uh, info on the back table, and I would invite you to pick that up. If you're here before you leave and you have any questions about anything I talked about today, uh, I love questions. And so uh, please come and visit with me if you have questions about any of the scriptures, any of the concepts that we talked about. If you're here and you want prayer for any particular need, please come and we would love to pray with you.